0: Thanks so much, Jordan. So good to preach my last sermon, and so sad to preach it at the same time. Um, Out of goodwill, I've had a couple of people ask me, George, is this your last Sunday? And I'm like, "Um, it's my last sermon, but not my last Sunday. Um, um, I have a few more. Maybe two Sundays left, but I'm still counting them, hoping to see your faces and um, and enjoy just the fellowship. My sermon this morning gave me a lot to think about. You see, my very first paper I wrote, first ever paper I wrote in seminary was on God's wrath and his mercy. This was how the paper was um, titled, Is God's Wrath and His Mercy Incompatible Attributes Discuss. And it was a very long discussion. Um, yeah, my wife and son, is just, they just saw me at night burning the midnight candle writing this paper. And lucky for me, I get to preach on God's wrath and His mercy um, this morning. But God's wrath and his mercy is not a popular subject. Whenever we talk about God's wrath, especially in his relationship with his mercy, we tend to run away from his wrath. It's as though we want to talk about it, but we don't want to talk about it. But in as much as God's wrath is devastating, his mercy is more. His mercy is great. This is what we see in our text today. We see God's wrath on the house of Saul and God's great mercy on the house of David. And here is the difference it's all about faithfulness. Saul is faithless, but David is faithful. And now this may strike us as odd because we've seen David sin many times. Over and over again, he fails. But here is the difference between the two of them. David repents. Saul doesn't. And unlike Saul, David has a covenant with God. And David keeps short account with God in this covenant. He lives a life of repentance. So yes, David is not sinless. Like Saul, he's not sinless. But David is faithful in his covenant relationship with God. Before we get any further into our passage, I want to situate us in the text we are going to see today. The remaining chapters of Second Samuel are not written in a chronological order. They don't follow the order of events. Uh, they are written in a chiastic structure. Chiasm is simply having the front and the end Match as well as the middle and the inner circles. So the stories at the front and at the bottom go together. So is the stories in the center going together. Um, so when we look at the second somewhat chapter 21 to the rest of the end of the book in chapter 24, we see this. Stories of deliverance come first, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, which connects with chapter 24, verses 1 to 25. These are the stories of deliverance. Within these stories, we have two lists. A list which shows us David's help he gets from his soldiers with his men. These lists are set within the second bracket. You see them in chapter 21 verses 15 to 22, and chapter 23, verses 8 to 39. We find David's mighty men, the giant killers, and their names. And finally, placed in the center are two poems. Poems which are depicting God's deliverance of David, celebration of what God has done for David, as well as the covenant God has shown to David. So in all, chapter 21 till the end of the book, Gives us the true nature of kinship under God. Kinship grounded in a relationship with God. Because God is the one who enthrones and dethrones. He is the one who kills and makes alive. He is the one by whom all actions are weighed. And our focus this morning is on the two stories which are found in the first brackets. Stories showing David's dealing with God and God dealing. With David. With this in mind, please open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21. I will be reading from verses 1 to 6 of chapter 21 and then we will turn pages to chapter 24 for us to read verses 1 to 14 over there. Would you please now stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it. For us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Let's now turn to chapter 24. I read from verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arroia and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad, unto Yeza. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hevites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet God. David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So God came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes, while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider... And decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The takeaway from our text this morning is God's wrath is devastating, but his mercy is great for his faithful. God's wrath is devastating, but his mercy is great for his faithful. Both stories begin with God's wrath and both end with God responded to the plea of the land. So we see God's wrath and his great mercy in these stories. And I have one point from each chapter to help us to help us see the takeaway. First, we see God's just wrath on the house of Saul, and second, we encounter God's great mercy on the house of David. Both Saul and David, in their actions, represent Israel as king. So the consequences of their actions fall on the nation as a whole. And the covenantal faithfulness separates these two kings and their houses. Let's begin by looking at God's just wrath on the house of Saul. Chapter 21 begins with a famine. And in verses 1 to 2, God in his mercy reveals Saul's violence as risen for God's wrath. It's been three years, three years of famine. So David takes action. And how do we know this? Because he inquires, David inquires of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord and God says, the house of Saul is to blame for the famine. But Saul is dead. Yet his past actions are in the thick of things. His actions live on and they bring untold hardship. Hardship upon Israel. So church... Out of the gates, we are told God's wrath is just. God's wrath is always justified, and we may never understand it all, but God knows it all, and His way is always perfect, so we can trust Him to act justly, always. Saul has blood guilt on himself and on his house because he puts the Gibeonites to death. Saul's actions bring God's wrath. And Saul's actions bring national disaster. We are not told the number of deaths in Israel as a result of the famine. But we know this. This is desperate times. And so David seeks a resolution to this crisis to make amends and to do it very fast. So he brings the Gibeonites up for a conference. Now the Gibeonites are not Israelites as we are told in verse 4. The Gibeonites are Amorites who trick Israel when Israel was entering into the promised land. They enter into a covenant relation with them during the conquest of Canaan. Joshua chapter 9 is helpful here. It is the background to this text. The Gibeonites make this covenant with Joshua and all Israel before God in Joshua chapter 9 verse 15. And and God is the one who supervises this covenant because it's made before him. God is to ensure that both parties honor their terms of the bargain. And despite their initial trickery, the Gibeonites have lived peaceably under the covenant and the terms that were spelled out. For their trickery, Joshua makes them serve as drawers of water and cutters of wood for the house of God. And so they serve in this very lowly capacity in the house of God for life. Joshua chapter 9 verse 19 says this, All the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them, but Saul touches them. A centuries-old covenant is broken by Saul, and the consequences is devastating. The consequences is disastrous. As king, Saul's actions ripple beyond his own family. He represents the nation in his wickedness. Let's look at verse 2. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So Saul's zeal is not for the Lord. It's not for Yahweh. His zeal is for his people. His zeal is to please people more than God. In First Samuel 15, we are told Saul is commanded by Yahweh to destroy the Amalekites. What do we see there? Nothing. But with the Gibeonites, Saul finds his zeal and he takes them on. I want us to slow down here a bit to let it sink in. How our zeal today for the wrong things stand in the way of our God and his work. How are we making certain things in our own life the main thing other than gospel living in word and in deed? Saul is now dead. But as Israel's unfaithful representative, his actions bring disaster. And David, as Israel's faithful representative, takes action. Numbers 35, verse 33 tells us, "Shed blood pollutes the land, and only the blood of the guilty can atone for the land. So in verses 3 to 6, David seeks to atone for Saul's blood guilt when he meets the Gibeonites. Notice the two questions in verse 3. What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites respond with a focus not on Israel, but a focus on Saul's house in verses 4 to 6. They point out how Saul plans to decimate them for good. And we are not told, again, how many Gibeonites Saul put to death. Verses 4 to 6 shows the death toll is likely high. It looks like an ethnic cleansing. Let's look at verses 4 to 6 together. The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. They said to the king, The man who consumed us and, he, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Now, this is very difficult to hear, especially to our modern ears in many respects. But let's consider this. As foreigners among Israel, these people grieved silently after Saul's massacre. The massacre of the Gibeonites is virtually forgotten by God's people. Not even remembered by David. But the God of covenants remembers. God remembers even when his people forget. God remembers the Gibeonites to give justice to this foreign people. And so to atone for the massacre of Saul, the Gibeonites demand blood for blood. They demand seven sons from Saul's house to execute them before the Lord. And David's answer is swift, I will give them. In what follows from verses 7 to 9 in chapter 21, we see how David navigates his own faithfulness to the covenant he makes with Jonathan without breaking his promise to the Gibeonites. The promise between David and Jonathan seems like long ago. But in 1 Samuel 20, we remember how David covenanted with Jonathan for life, to treat Jonathan and his offsprings for life. So David spares Mephibosheth because of his covenant with Jonathan. And this has several gospel overtones, but let's focus on just one. In Christ Jesus, we as believers are spared the just wrath of God. They come in just wrath, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. So two sons of Rispa, born to Saul and RiISpa, get picked up, along with five grandchildren of Saul, to atone for the blood guilt Saul brings. And just as a side note in verse 8, we meet another Basiliah, but this Basiliah is not the same Basiliah from Gilead who meets um, David last week to show him kindness. There are two different people with the same name. Saul's bloody dealings brings untold hardship to his children and his grandchildren. And it makes us wonder, what are we to make of all this? The reality is that sin is never a private affair. Because the consequences of sin hurt others around us. The farming on Israel is just one case in point. In God's world, sin is never a private affair. God's justice is now satisfied in the case of the Gibeonites. And we expect the famine to end. Naturally, if God is delighting in sacrifice, if... But we don't. We don't see a resolution here. The famine has not ended after the sacrifice. Why? We only see God's merciful response to heal the land after compassion is shown. Because God does not delight in sacrifices. No, he delights in mercy. Hosea 6, verse 6 helps us here. Psalm 51 helps us here. There are several verses in Scripture which tells us that God does not delight in sacrifices. He delights in mercy. And all of Scripture begins with a blessing, not a curse. The curse is a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, our representatives in the garden. But in Christ Jesus we have a new and a better representation. So we see Rispa, a compassionate mother who laments. She laments the loss of this man who take the place of Saul. And her actions should help us, should help us see the pain and agony of sin. The pain and agony sin brings. She covers the dead from being desecrated for weeks. And this moves David to take action once again, to collect the dead and to bury them. David arranges for the bones of Saul and for the bones of Jonathan to be brought in and to be buried with these seven lives as well. And finally, God responds. He responds in compassion to the pleas of the land. Saul's house suffers devastating consequences for his actions. His legacy is the blood guilt he brings upon himself and upon his own house. That's how the ending of Second Samuel reminds us of Saul and his legacy. Let's now turn to the legacy of David. In our second story, in chapter 24, we encounter God's great mercy on the house of David. Here again, we see the wrath of God unleashed on Israel. In the earlier episode in Saul's house, we are told the reason why God is angry, but not here. Israel surely has done something wrong to trigger the anger of God, but we are not told what sin Israel commits. So God finds an occasion to punish Israel. God incites David to sin. 1 Chronicles 21 recounts this same story. But there we see how Satan is the one who incites David to sin. So what's going on? At least two things are going on here. And we have to live with them. First, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God are at play. This means God in his own sovereignty plans and uses Satan to accomplish his ends. Second, God's sovereignty is interacting with human responsibility. As we shall soon find out, David takes full responsibility for his sin that God incites. So the fact that God plans something does not mean God is culpable for the act. We see this in what Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is crucified by lawless men, but this was God's plan all along. It was God's plan for Christ to die. Yet those who killed Jesus are not guiltless. And so we see David again, here in this passage, beginning, against the the council of his own generals, he goes to number the people. He begins a census, a nationwide census, starting from Dan, up north in Israel, to Beersheba, down south. And this time, David seeks no counsel from God. It's the king's word against all counsel. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 24. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and, the, and his commanding officers go out to execute the king's wishes. And we are not told, once again, why David commits this sin of taking a census. But we find clues in our passage. Joab and his men returned to the king with data from the census. In verse 9. But the only list we have are fighting men with the data that comes. This is what we read. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. David is counting fighting men. And this is not necessarily wrong, but it makes us wonder to think if David is putting his trust in chariots and in horses, rather than his trust in God. And right afterwards, David's conscience pricks him. In verses 10 to 15, we see David deals with God before God deals with David. David prays. He prays before God's judgment comes. He prays a prayer of confession in verse 10. He says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Faithfulness to God is seen in a life of repentance. So David deals with God. Now God deals with David. The next morning, God shows up with God's word. I was just um, making a joke with my wife that um, from Ghana, with some kind of British accent, when I say God and God, I think I hear a difference. In America, when you say God and God, I'm like, which is which? (laughs) But here, God shows up with God's word. God asks David to choose one out of three punishments. And none of the three punishments are nice or easy choice. Three years. They all come in threes. Three years of famine. While well, he's just saw, seen three years of famine. Three months of fleeing. Fleeing from his enemies. And David knows he has countless enemies. Then three days of pestilence. None of these are easy choices. And some people may say that David makes a choice, but he doesn't. The text doesn't tell us that. David's response in verse 14 is key to understand this. In verse 14, we see how David lives his life under God. Unlike Saul, who reaches for plan B, when God brings judgment, David sticks with God. You remember when Saul goes to Endor to meet a medium, when God refuses to let his word come to him. Here David has only one plan. It is his only plan A, B, C, D to Z. David falls into the hand of the Lord because God's mercy is great. God's wrath is surely devastating, but his mercy is great for his faithful. Let's look at verse 14 together. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David basically tells God to choose. He's not choosing. As believers, our joy and comfort are in the hands of this same God, who works everything perfectly, perfect in his wrath, perfect in his mercy. He does what is right with us. He always does. In verse 15, we see the plague God sends on Israel for David's sin. It's from Dan to Bathsheba. The last time we saw from Dan to Bathsheba was in the king's words and wishes. In verse 2. Now God's word prevails against the king. And 70,000 men die in a very short short period of time. Like the sin of Saul, David's sin brings devastating consequences. But God spares David out of this because of his great mercy towards David. The plague stops before the three-day period. Because the angel who wreaks destruction is stopped from touching Jerusalem by God himself. God says, Enough! Stay your hand. And the angel stops. God stops the plague before the three days that he gave. The angel of destruction stops right at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. And this is important. The location where the angel stops is important. Because this is where God shows great mercy God's full wrath is not poured out on Israel. This is God's mercy for those he covenants with. God makes a covenant with David in Second Samuel chapter 7. And in Second Samuel 7, it is David who seeks to build God a house. And God flips it around and tells David, I'm going to build you a sure house. And God promises David then, My steadfast love will not depart from you as I took it from Saul. You see that in chapter 7, verse 15. And this is the outflow, outplay of that. And unlike Saul, David pleads for the Lord to pour his wrath on him and on his house. In verse 17, David intercedes for the people. David seeks to atone for the sin he has committed. He laments and intercedes in prayer for the nation. And God responds to David and to the plea of the land in verses 18 to 25. The threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite becomes the focus of attention. God commands David to raise up an altar right there at the threshing floor. Here David offers sacrifices in response to God's mercy in verse 16. The threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite and the sacrifice made are important for two reasons. First, Solomon's temple is built at this very place. This temple sits in memory of God's great mercy, not his wrath. We see this in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1. Second, David's sacrifice is important because it points to the ultimate sacrifice we see in Christ Jesus, the lamp of God. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice and mediator of a better covenant, accomplishes this for us. He accomplishes what no sacrifice ever would ever have. Hebrews 7 is a fitting conclusion to this two episodes, these two stories. As I bring my sermon to a close, Hebrews 7 is fitting. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, let's treasure this great mercy we have in Christ. And let's intercede For all who are not in Christ to come to know this saving knowledge and truth. But if you are here, and you've not seen or tasted the goodness of God in Christ, I have only one thing to show you. Not far from this temple is the cross. And on the cross, God pours all his wrath on his son. His only begotten son. So you and I can live justified by his blood. Put your faith in this God. Put your faith in Christ who offers up himself once and for all to rescue sinners. Sinners like me and you. Please pray with me. Father, by your word and your spirit, you've taught us what we know not and have given us what we have not. So in your mercy, help us. Help us to become what we are not. In Jesus' name, amen.